I'll give a wave like this just to let you know that that joke is over. I misbehave on stage, but I'm better than when I wasn't sober. Right, so um, I've sobered up. There's still some blackouts. And, um, I worked in Hyman's and survived tornadoes and trailers, but that don't mean I won't put in my two weeks later. Having a good time, baby, having a good time, baby. We're having a real good time. We're having a good time, baby. Having a good time, baby I'll tell you one more time Oh yeah We're having a good time Yeah We're having a good time And all right, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the We're Having a Good Time podcast My name's Dusty Slay I am your host for this thing And uh, I'm again trying to video it If you don't see the video, then that means it didn't happen but I'm trying. I got a new camera that I'm going to be trying to record my stand-up with. And so I thought, hey, let's go ahead and see if we can do the podcast this way. I've got everything I need, finally. And hopefully I can pull this off. But the problem I'm dealing with right now is my ceiling fan doesn't work in this room. I'm not trying to turn my air conditioner on, and it's a little hot. So I don't want to run the lights because they blow me up. I've been looking at myself on the nightly storytelling show that I'm doing on Instagram. If you're not tuning into that, I'm doing a nightly storytelling show on my Instagram, at Dusty Slay, and it's been a lot of fun. People have really been liking it, and um, it's getting a lot of views uh, for me, and I think it's really great. I'm not going to be able to do it over the weekend, though. Where we've been, where we're going. Where they going. Where they been. Where they going. Where they been? Where we're going? Where we've been? And the reason is because I'm going to Huntsville, Alabama, to do comedy at Stand Up Live. I'll be down there all weekend with. Uh, I'll be headlining, and then Aaron Weber will be my feature, and then the host will be Connor Larson. We're going to have a jam-packed Nashville jam down in Huntsville. Uh, by jam-packed, I mean, of course, socially distanced. Uh, probably half capacity, maybe 25% capacity um, shows at the club. It's going to be exciting. I'm excited to be doing it. Uh, People are talking a lot of heat out there. People are saying it's very irresponsible to be doing comedy right now. But my take is nobody, nobody is telling us when we'll be able to go. You know what I mean? Like I'm not even trying to be all like, conspiracy theorist about it but it's like in the beginning they were like all right we're gonna lock down so the hospitals don't get overwhelmed and here we are like two and a half months later and people are like you can't go outside and i'm like well what is the day if somebody were like if somebody said to me they said dusty by the beginning of june this entire thing will be cleared up and everything's going to be gone it's a guarantee we'll get back to work in june well i would be fine to wait but at the rate things are going, it looks like that every time we turn around, we're just going to keep getting pushed back to not working anymore. And I need to work. I don't know. I mean, I guess everyone's rich except for me, but I need to work. I got to go make money. So, I, I mean, people are saying it's irresponsible, but I've always been taught that it's irresponsible not to work. So I'm sorry if I'm having a hard time getting rid of that aspect. 
getting rid of that aspect of of uh, I need to work. So uh, I'm going to go do it, and I'm pumped to do it because I love comedy. I mean, I love comedy, and I'd like to make money. So it's exciting. So I'm going to be doing that. So I won't be doing the storytelling show Thursday night, Friday, Saturday, or Sunday. But next week I'll be back. I got to get people lined up. I don't have I don't have new storytellers lined up. I have a few people that have agreed to do it, and hopefully I can. Uh, get them to say the final yeses, but man, it's been really fun. I've had uh, just, I've had no repeats except uh, Dee Dee uh, Kennedy uh, filled in for me when when I had another comic that got the time zones mixed up and didn't show up. I've only had two comics stand me up, and one of them got the time zone mixed up, and one of them fell asleep, as they said, real early, real early sleeper out there, but doesn't matter. I'm excited because I have uh, a podcast to do, and I've been getting into stories, right? And so the last couple of episodes, I've been talking about my time uh, working at Spectreside, and I always wanted to do jokes about Spectreside, and it was al- it's always been really hard um, to figure out what Um, how to do jokes in it. But I just thought I would talk about it. I find it to be such an interesting job that people don't know that exist. And how I got into it, people often ask me, they'll go, how'd you get into doing something like that? And uh, so I'd like to just talk about it. And, you know, I got roughly 55 minutes to just kind of let my mind go. I've got myself some notes here, but all in all, um, this was a job that I did for, after doing the math, uh, looks like about 10 years of my life I spent doing this job. So I'd like to get into it a little bit. I moved to Charleston, South Carolina in 2003, and late 2003, and by the spring of 2004, I had gotten the job working for a company called Spectreside. Now, I'm going to complain about Spectreside throughout this thing, but my complaints about this job are no different than anybody's complaints about their job. So I'm not trashing the company. In the end, uh, it all ends well. So I just want—I mean, if you're if you're a a former employee of there or you're a current employee of there, and you're thinking, "Wow, he's really trashing this place," I'm not trashing them at all. I'm just going to talk about my experience with them. I mean, I still have friends that work there. I just ran into my friend the other day in Nashville who still works for the company. Uh, For a lot of people, it's been a really great career for them. And honestly, for me, for nine years, uh, 10 years, roughly, it uh, provided uh, employment for me and money for me, and it's been a big help to me, and I'm very thankful for the company. But being thankful is not funny. And not fun. So it's the thing to do, but it's not funny and fun. So I'm going to get into it. All right. So in spring of now, let me let me start back. When I was growing up, my brother-in-law, who had moved down from Michigan, was living with us in a trailer. He wasn't my brother-in-law at the time. He was dating my sister, and he worked for Spectreside. That was his job. He was a college-educated guy. He was, you know, moved from Michigan down south to be with my sister. And he was just trying to figure out his way, and he got a job working for a company called Spectrum Brands, and he started working there. And I just remember, I mean, there was a commercial I wish I could find. I filmed a commercial as a kid with a a VHS camcorder. Me and my friend Costa and my friend James Decker, we 
filmed a commercial where we said, you know, bugs can't hide from Spectracide. You know, we did that sort of thing, which was their slogan at one time. And I remember my brother-in-law bringing home shelving units. I mean, in our bathroom at one time, the plastic Spectracide shelving unit was what we kept our towels on. I mean, we had several of those shelving units. So, and this was a job, and then he he went on and moved on to a different company, but kept his relationship with some people. One guy in particular still works for the company. Uh, his name's Pat. I'm going to say some real names. I won't say their last names, but I don't I don't know how to do it. I, I'm not slandering people, but I'm not trying to make up names here. I uh, hope I don't get in trouble. I don't know how this works. But Pat was a family friend, and Pat was... Um, high up in the company and he would come and he would hang out with us at the trailer and him and my brother-in-law would go hunting. So, all right. So that was when I was a little kid. So years and years later, I'm 21, I'm living in Charleston and the spring of 2004, uh, my brother-in-law Rob gets me a job with Spectrum. And so I start, I talk to a guy on the phone named Stu. He doesn't seem happy with me already. And, uh, because I was out of town, he's like, I need you, I need, I need someone to be working right now. And you're out of town, I need someone to be working. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go. And I was excited to have the job because it paid ten fifty an hour. And at the time, I was working at a job, I was working at Office Depot making seven eighty an hour. And that's after I had gotten a $0.10 cent raise. So, so I was very happy at ten fifty an hour. And I showed up, the guy said, just wear some clothes that you're ready to work in. And I looked raggedy. I didn't know what he meant. I, I, you know, I'm used to wearing a uniform. And he's like, just wear something that you're ready to work in. And I looked terrible. So I start working with this guy. And, and what this company does is they, uh, you, you are a sales rep for this company in Lowe's and Home Depot stores. So Lowe's and Home Depot sells the products, Hotshot, Cutter, Spectrum Brand, Spectracide, uh, we also had Stay Green Fertilizer and Vigoro Fertilizer at the time. And we had lots of stuff on the outside of the store, lots of stuff on the inside of the store. And our job was to go in and basically in, in, a, in a retail store, you have things that are on the regular shelf and then above is everything in the boxes. So our job was to go in and fill the shelves, build displays, clean our products, make sure they looked good and 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 um, presentable so that customers would come in there and buy it and then off oftentimes we would have to teach the employees about the products so that they could sell them and we would also stand in the store sometimes and just try to get customers to buy our products and so and i was working for this guy this was all new to me this was an entire new world to me that i had never experienced I mean, I worked at Office Depot for many years, and I was employee of the month one time. So I had a good grasp on retail, um, but I was used to being in one store and just caring for that store. But I, I, my boss, and, the, and now, now this job that I started in the spring was just for probably four or five months, depending on how long the season went. I was the seasonal helper. So, and I knew that, and my other job, I was working at Hyman's simultaneously, so it worked out great. I, did, I didn't have all my eggs in one basket. I had multiple streams of income, and uh, it really worked out great. I was doing two or three jobs at one, at one time. 
because I was also swinging Office Depot in, and it was it was a lot. I had a lot going on, and so I would go. I was working for this guy named Stu Barber, and I'm saying his last name. I guess he would be considered a public figure, but Stu played football for the Buffalo Bills. I think in the '60s, Jack Kemp who was uh, Bob Dole's running mate for president. Jack Kemp was the quarterback of the Buffalo Bills at the time Stu played. And Stu was like multi-all-pro. He was well over six feet tall. I don't know exactly, probably 6'5", very tall guy. Um, Really big jaw. He had slick back white hair. Looked a little bit like Billy Graham, but like a real buff Billy Graham, I mean, the guy was stout, and he walked with power and authority. He spoke with power and authority. I was not used to that uh, other than my own dad, and this guy, uh, he commanded, you know, and I was afraid of this guy. I mean, he had, he had big glasses, and his glasses had a chain that went around his neck, and when he was emphasizing a point, he would drop the glasses, and they would dangle and he would, I don't know, it was just like, a, he's like, I, this is so serious, I don't want this glass to get in between our conversation. So, um, I didn't know if he liked me for a long time. And Stu would have me, you know, his, go, his mindset with how to sell the most amount of products in the store was, he's like, let's pull everything out of the overhead. Because, you know, what, what you would think about doing is you go in and you see, all right, we're missing a little bit of this on the shelf. Let's bring a box down. Let's fill it up. And then leave what doesn't fill. But Stu said, let's get everything down. Everything that's in the overhead, let's get it down. Let's find a place. We had stuff all over that store. We were building displays. We had stuff everywhere. Stu mostly took the inside. We would work the stores together. Uh, we would work the inside together. We had a ladder that had um, that you could move. I don't know if you're familiar. It's like a rolling staircase. And we would go in there, and Stu would climb up to the top. And he would throw down the boxes to me. And Stu would throw them down. He, he did, had no compassion for, is this hurting your hands? Am I throwing this too hard? Am I coming at you too fast? Uh, how much did you drink last night? The dude was hurling boxes. And I'm just working it. I'm like, I am not going to let this guy know that it's hurting my hands. And we were working it, man. We were... I mean, because I was all—I was always kind of a tough little kid, anyway. But this—I mean, he—I mean, these are heavy boxes, and he's like just throwing them. Just th- and I'm like, all right, dude. And I couldn't tell if he liked me for a long time. And then once we got all the boxes down, Stu would then—he would stock them, and he would tell me to go outside and handle all the fertilizers and the soils. We had a little bit of both. And these things—if you've ever been in a Lowe's or Home Depot—you see the fertilizers and the soils on these giant pallets. So I would have to go get a pallet jack, which is a, a handheld thing that you push. It's got two prongs on it. You push into the pallet, and then you jack it up, and then you move those pallets. So I'm pulling pallets of fertilizer and soil all over the store. A lot of times we would take one pallet of fertilizer, 40-pound bags, and we would individually stack those bags on top of another pallet of fertilizer and then display them out in a way that really looked presentable. I became very good at this. Throughout that 2004 season, I worked maybe 30 hours a week with Stu at Spectraside. We drove, we had 10 stores in Charleston. We had Lowe's and Home Depot's and, uh, you know, we would, 
you know, we really got to know each other and we would, you know, we would say we would do three stores a day. We would go and we would do the first one. We would get it done in like an hour. And we're, we're like, well, we still have several hours to go. So let's kill a little time. Stu would always say, you don't want them to know how fast you can get the job done. So we would go, you know, we would get our job done. It would look good in there. And then Stu would go, all right, let's go take a break. And then we'd go sit in the car and listen to music. We listened to all kinds of music. We would listen to music and Stu would drink coffee and smoke Winston's. Um, now, this is in the Charleston heat. Charleston is one of the hottest places. I mean, it's definitely the hottest that I've ever lived, but it's just so hot and muggy. We weren't allowed to wear shorts at this job. You had to wear pants. And we would just sit in his truck, and he would chain smoke Winston's, and he would tell me all kinds of stories. I mean, he told me stories of he, he managed the uh, he managed the Buffalo Bills Stadium after his career, and he was said he was responsible for bringing in musical acts to fill the stadium during, um, during the you know when football wasn't in, so that they could continue to generate money. He talked about bringing in the Rolling Stones and uh, I don't know lots of other people. I, I just remember the Rolling Stones. He said they flew in on a helicopter. They demanded their money in cash, multiple thousands of dollars in cash. They did the concert, got right back in the helicopter with their cash, and flew away. Uh, he said Eric Clapton came. He said Eric Clapton came at the height of his career and at the height of his drug problems and said Eric Clapton got so wasted before the show, this place was sold out. He said it was a sold out, packed arena. And he said it got, Eric Clapton got so messed up that he, his manager was like, Eric's not going to do the show tonight. He can't do it. And Stu was like, he said to me, you know, this was one of those moments where he takes the glasses off and he's like, I don't know if you understand riot control, but he was like, these people were excited to see Eric Clapton. I was not going to go out there and tell them that Eric Clapton was not going to play tonight. So he told me that he chained the doors to his dressing room shut. And he said, you're not getting out of here unless you play this concert. So they agreed, and they kind of wheeled Eric Clapton out to the stage, and he played well enough to satisfy the crowd. Uh, But he said, yeah, it wasn't good. But he said, I wasn't going to let that happen. He told me once he hired this guy as a security guy. He said this guy was like just this, I don't don't remember his name. He just said he was just this unbelievable security guy. Like he – Seemed pretty regular size, but could do anything. He said one day they were standing out there, and I don't know what was happening, but there was a chain link fence out there, and this group of bikers rolled up, and they were like yelling at them. It was just that guy and Stu out there. They were yelling at them. The the bikers were like, we're going to break in there. We're going to beat somebody up. And then I guess one of the bikers got over the fence And this guy, in just like one motion, like snapped the guy's arm. And then the whole place went away. So this is the kind of stories that Stu would tell me. And as we got, you know, as we got more into getting to know each other, we would go to eat, you know, and we would go, uh, we'd do our job and then we'd go, all right, let's go get some breakfast. So we would go to a Shoney's or a Waffle House or a Denny's and we would get our food. Stu would, I would always eat, you know, like a normal person. Stu would drink coffee and eat like a cinnamon roll. Like he wouldn't really pile on the breakfast, but he would eat like a cinnamon roll. 
and he would read the paper. He would sit there. He would read the whole paper. I don't know what I would do. I didn't have a phone. I mean, I don't know what I, you know what I mean? Like I had a phone, but I didn't have a smartphone back then. I don't know what I did to pass the time while Stu read. But that's what we did. We would sit there like that. And then Stu would, once he was done with the paper, he would set it down and he would go, all right, tell me, talk to me about something you've been thinking about. And then I would be forced to have some sort of intelligent conversation with Stu. We would talk about all sorts of things. We would talk about women. Stu would tell me stories about women. And I mean, just what it was like to be an NFL player and how great that life was. Even though they didn't pay well back then, he just would talk about the, the parties and just, he said he, uh, he said he's, that he said he used to play against Mike Ditka and uh, said one time at one of the Spectreside sales meetings, Mike Ditka was the, they had hired him to be the speaker for the sales meeting. And afterwards, Stu goes up and talks to Mike Ditka and said all the bigwigs at Spectreside were like giving him a look like, what are you doing talking to him? And he's like, he's like, I know this guy. He's like, ask him how he's got that scar above his nose, you know? And he just, um, the guy just seemed to love football. He told me when he was younger, he used to watch it on a little black and white TV screen. And he said, even back then, he's like, I knew that's what I wanted to do. And then he played uh, college at Penn State when um, – uh, who was the guy that uh, – I don't know. Whoever the guy was that uh, was like the great coach that everyone loved and now no one talks about him at all. But Joe Paterno, I think that's who it is. But he he said he was an assistant coach back then. Like that's how long he had been around. But uh, And then, you know, we would just have these great conversations and – I just really liked hanging out with Stu, but also was intimidated by him at the same time and oftentimes didn't like hanging out with Stu. Oftentimes I was like, oh man, this guy doesn't like me. He's judging me all the time. He's like, I got to be like, we, I would go, I would do all the work outside and then I would come in and he'd go, he'd go, how's it look out there? And I'd go, it looks pretty good. And he would go pretty good. And, and then I would, he would say it in a way that at first I would go, I don't know, let me go check a couple of things out there. And then I would go out there and check it. And then he would, I would come back in and he would go, uh, and then he would say, how's it look? I go real good. So it got to be that kind of thing. Whenever I would say pretty good, he would go pretty good. I would go real good. And he just taught me, you know, kind of to be more direct. And he also, you know, just really taught me how to do this job and, um, so as, as time goes on, I mean, we, we worked together for that first season in 2004 and then in 2005, we're back working together. I left for the, you know, the winter or whatever. And then I come back in spring 2005. <clears throat> this year we had, uh, no home depots. We just had lows. So we had even less stores. I think there was less hours. I think I was down to about 20 hours. But that was okay because during 2005, I was living on Folly Beach. So every day I would get off work from Spectreside about noon, and I would go home to Folly Beach, and I would go to the beach, and I would get drunk. That year, I was so hungover. I was so sunburned. I was so sunburned that my head, my forehead had just scabbed over from sunburn after sunburn after sunburn. And I was just drinking. Honestly, I was having the time of my life. I loved living on Folly Beach. I was, 
I mean, it was just a blast. And so I would, I would, ha- I would work like four hours a day, Monday through Thursday. And so I would get up at six to meet Stu at work at seven. Then I'd get off at noon and then I would party. And then most of the time I would pass out midnight or after I would wake up so late already, not enough time to shower. So I would go into work hungover and covered with sand. I would have sand in my crotch all the time. I was always walking around like I had just gotten off a horse, as they say, because my inside of my legs were so chafed from walking, the heat, the moisture, the sand, probably uh, beer leaking out of me. And I was just uh, a wreck. But I was having the time of my life, right? I was just, I was a wreck, but what a blast. And then, so we go through, that's basically that year. By 2006, so, I, I, you know, by 2006, uh, we're, um, you know, we're back in business. We're back, uh, back at Spectreside. We got the Home Depots back now, and I think we've picked up an Orangeburg store, which that store is a little farther away. So we would have to get up real early on that day. And I would meet Stu. I would work on a Monday night at Hyman's. And then Tuesday morning, I would be up at like four to meet Stu at five in Somerville to drive to Orangeburg, which was about another hour and a half. Every time I would fall asleep, snore, he would wake me up every time. I couldn't stay awake. I mean, he's acting like I'm supposed to be. He'd always harass me about it, like I'm supposed to be awake. And I'm like, dude. Help me out here. I mean, I am, um, I mean, I, I got no sleep here. I'm dying here. And uh, so, you know, I just remember him always like outworking me and then being like, how am I outworking you at 68 years old? He's like, I'm 68 and I'm outworking you. And I'm like, well, I wasn't an NFL player, okay? I didn't grow up in the Depression era. I'm just kidding. And, uh, but I really liked working with Stu. I, I, I just, I grew to really like him, really respect him. He taught me about saving money. He, he taught me how to manage my money, how to open a savings account, how to, I mean, these were things that you would think I would know, but I didn't really know. He was, he had begun to teach me how to date and how to, to compliment people. I told him that there was this girl that I really liked at one of the Lowe's stores and I was like, she got a new haircut and I was like, I really like it. And he said, well, you should tell her that you really like it. And I felt like that compliments were somehow creepy. And he said, well, you know, the way to make them not creepy is to just get in a habit of complimenting people. He's like, if you uh, just compliment people, compliment guys, girls, you know, and then when you actually want to give a girl a compliment that you like, now you're already used to it. You're good at it. And I never went on a date with that girl. I never got to compliment her. I, I tried actually to compliment her hair, and I bumbled the compliment to make it seem like I said I liked her old haircut better, but I was really trying to say I liked her new one better than her old one, and I bumbled it. But it did begin me on a journey where uh, genuine compliments, I never, I'm never a fake complimenter. I do not like a fake compliment. If I don't like somebody's comedy set, I do not want to tell them that I liked it. I will sometimes say sarcastically, great set. But what I always try to do with comedy is find a genuine compliment, find something within their set, even if their entire set was terrible, but there was one laughable moment in there, compliment that moment. I always find that. And 
you know, so it, it sent me on this journey and he taught me about a little bit about real estate. I, I wasn't equipped to handle that yet, but I mean, he gave me a plan. I still like the plan. I won't tell what that plan is, but I still like that plan. I even went to church with Stu a couple of times and, um, you know, I just really, my, one of my first shows, I think in 2005 in Charleston, Stu came to my show. I think that's the only show he's ever been to, but he came to that show. And it just meant a lot to me. And, and, and we, we really got to, to know each other. And then 2006 season was over. Uh, and then th- during that season, uh, during that winter time, I wrecked my car. I got real drunk at a party and uh, I was leaving the party and everybody was like, I mean, I'm, I'm hanging out with the alcoholics of alcoholics. I mean, these people are the, the, the biggest alcoholics on the planet. And so I'm drinking with them and then I'm leaving the party and they're like, don't drive. They're all like, don't drive. And I'm like, I mean, I'm like, you're an alcoholic like me. How are you going to tell me not to drive? Uh, I'm going to start and restart the camera. Hold on. I was like, you guys are the biggest alcoholics on the planet. How are you going to tell me not to drive? But they, they said, don't drive. And me and my friend Mike, we leave. And we're, you know, we're, um, I, was, I was really listening pretty heavy to the Starsky and Hutch soundtrack at the time. And I don't know how familiar you are with that, but there is a Jackson 5 song on there called Dancing Machine. Dancing, dancing, dancing. I'm a dancing machine. Oh, baby. Oh, you know what? I'll try to find it because I, I like that. I, I want to I let you know what I was really into. Let's see if I can just go Starsky and Hutch soundtrack. Oh, here it is. So this was a song. I was really into listening to this. You get the idea. What an incredible song, though. I mean, all right, I got to try to stop it. I don't know how to stop it. All right. What an incredible song. So I'm listening to this a bunch. The Starsky and Hutch soundtrack really is great. And I was just, I mean, I was rolling out to it. And we're driving. We're on James Island. There's a lot of windy roads. And we're driving. And all of a sudden, boom, flipped the car. Wrecked it. Landed on the roof. We got out of there. Everything was fine. All that worked out. That's a story for another time. I also think it is a story on a podcast about how I quit drinking. 
But, you know, so that's not what this is about. But I wrecked that car. I ended up getting a 1984 Buick LeSabre. So I begin the 2007 season with Stu driving a 1984 Buick LeSabre. And, man, that was a rough, rough car. I loved it, but a rough car. And, you know, so Stu just kind of watched me begin to unravel. I mean, he, he, he saw me as a fresh 21-year-old. By 2007, I got long hair. I didn't have long hair when I started with Stu. By 2007, I got long hair. I got some kind of a, uh, just this hair uh, on the bottom, on my bottom lip, under my bottom lip going with that's kind of a style me and my friends were doing. I was wearing contacts. I was, you know, heavy into this and that along with alcohol. And I was just having a good time. But so, I mean, from Stu's perspective, I have to appear to be falling apart, but I had been good at the job. So Stu gladly hired me back each time. Now, during the 2007 season, I really had this girl that I liked that I worked with at Hyman's. And so I started talking to Stu about it. And Stu told me, you know, things to do on the date. Stu wasn't trying to help me be a hookup artist. Stu was trying to help me have a genuine dating experience. I probably had not had a girlfriend. Actually, I know I had not had a girlfriend the entire time I was working at, with Stu. I mean, I had some, you know, girls here and there that I would hang out with, but never a girlfriend. So Stu was like, um, you know, he he's he's helping me out. He's hooking me up. He's telling me how to date, how to he, – he would be like – did you ask her out? And I was like, well, I, I, you know, I invited her out with some friends and stuff. And he would be like, well, why did you do that? Why don't you just ask her out? I, I was like, I don't know. And he's like, you know, and, and Stu told me, he said, you're uncomfortable in one-on-one situations. He said, when, when you have a group, you get to turn into Dusty the Entertainer. You get to entertain a group of people. But when it's a one-on-one interaction, you're uncomfortable. Because you don't get to turn into that entertainer. And I think he was spot on. He really nailed me. Um, because, I mean, Stu had seen me. You know, I was a sensitive. I was, I mean, my dad was always around and, and he saved me from total sensitivity. But I grew up with women. I lived with a bunch of women in a trailer. I was a very sensitive man. I loved movies like Grease. And I loved a chick flick. You know what I mean? Friends was a fun show for me. I, you know, I loved a, I still love a sad song, but I mean, I was into that. I mean, I was like, you know, basically like uh, a, a girl planning her wedding. You know, I had that kind of sensitivity going. And, um, so Stu, uh, told me, you know, to be direct, tell people what you want. Don't play these games. And it took a while for me to really comprehend that and really understand what that meant. But this whole idea of if you get a girl's number, don't call her for two days, you know, don't seem too eager. It's like, you know, some of that stuff is obvious. Like, don't don't be like, I I need this date. But I mean, really, you know, uh, trying to actually date someone that you like as opposed to trying to hook up, it's two different worlds. And trying to date someone that you actually like, you should always be direct. You should tell the person, I like you. I'd like to go on a date with you again. And then if they say no, then you know. It may be heartbreaking to you, but you know. And you can move on, right? So 
that's you know that's that's really the great thing uh, about that. And Stu just taught me that. So I took this girl out. I I got I, and I talked to him about. It. I said, "All right, I've asked her out. We're going to go on a date tonight." And uh, and I'm driving this Buick Lesabre, and this is this would have you know this would at the time this was the most attractive girl I had ever dated. I mean, I I was I was uh, honestly I had such low confidence at the time. My confidence always kind of wavered, but. Uh, I had such low confidence that I never thought she would actually go out with me. So when she said yes, I was like, oh, okay. So we went on a date, and I, I talked to Stu about it. I was like, I was going to go on this date, and he was telling me some places to take her, and I'm like, oh, those places are really expensive. And so Stu takes out his billfold, uh, a wallet. I said billfold the other day, and somebody was like, billfold? What's that? So his wallet. And he pulled out a $100 bill. He gave it to me, and he said, I want you to go out tonight. I want you to have a good time, enjoy yourself, and don't worry about the money. So I was like, wow, that's great. So she dressed nice. I dressed nice. We, I met her downtown. We walked around for a little bit. We went to 82 Queen. We had a date. We had some wine. We had some food. It was fun. Uh, I asked her, would she want to go to Folly Beach? I had a friend that bartended on Folly Beach. I wasn't living on Folly. I was living on James Allen at the time. And she said, sure. So we rode out to Folly Beach. We sat there at the bar. We had some drinks. We had a good time. Um, I had given her a CD uh, that was, um, you know, Stu would say, well, what's she like? And I'm like, what kind of music she like? I'm like, oh, I don't know. And he would say, well, what about this? And then he, and I'd say, oh, I don't know. And he goes, do you, do you really like her? If you really like her, you don't seem to know anything about her. You don't seem to be paying attention. So there was a song that I, I may be confusing the first two dates, but it doesn't matter. I actually, uh, so we drove out to Folly and I had bought her this CD that I knew she said she liked this song. It was a genius move. Later on when we were fighting, later on down the road before we broke up when we were fighting, she brought that CD up. She was like, you know, you never do. And I was a, you know, I was an alcoholic. I, uh, probably the failing of that relationship was my fault. But she would say, you, you, you would, you know, you used to do really nice things. Like I remember on our first date, you gave me a CD just because you heard me mention a song. And I was just like, that was mind blowing. I mean, like how genius of a move it was from Stu. It was so great. And so, and then we went and we, you know, and, you know, the date went well and everything went great. We dated for a while. I mean, there's no need to get into all the details of all that. But, you know, even that we didn't, we didn't kiss on the first date. I think there's, I mean, dating culture now, I mean, people are trying to bang halfway through the first date, you know, this date, we didn't even kiss. I took her home. We didn't. And I just was like, this was great. I feel great about it. And I think I, I even went over. She lived near Hyman's. I even went to see her. I think on Saturday after work, just sat there and saw her for a second. Sunday, we went out. We had a weird day on Sunday. And then I thought the relationship was over. It wasn't. We dated for a while. Um, and... Uh, so, all right, so that's 2007. That gets us all the way through 2007 to where I'm at. But I want to go back because there's an entire aspect of the job that I've left out. I purposely left it out because it's hard to work it in with everything else we got going. So you know the grounds, 
the, you know, the landscape, you know, who I'm working with, you know, where we're working at, you know what we're doing. We're building displays. We're stocking shelves. Well, Spectroside wasn't the only company. There was a company called Pennington, which they had a rep that you rarely saw. There was a company called Bayer, which they had a rep that you rarely saw. And then there was a company called Scott's. And Scott's does all the name brands and pesticides you know. Scott's Fertilizer, miracle Grow, Roundup, Raid, all the popular brands that you know, that's what Scott's does. They got a huge team. I mean, it was just me and Stu, and they had about four or five people. Uh, they had company cars. They looked good. I mean, they were physically attractive people for this world that we're living in, right? I mean, and I mean, the the main guy was a guy named Matt. And Matt, to me, he, he, he had like a little bit of a George Clooney look, right? I mean, the guy, he was a good looking dude. He was from like New Jersey. The people in the stores love the guy. I remember I was working in a Lowe's one day and, and all right. So before I get into that, I, I, so we would fight. We would fight. We would tear down their displays. I mean, they would put up big cardboard displays with all their products on it or big plastic displays with all their products on it. We would come in, and then what you would want to do is when you go into the overhead, it's usually everything's in boxes because it's easy to bring down. You got one box. So what me and Stu would do was we would break down the shelf, and then we would throw each individual bottle up to each other and put that in the shelf. That way it was harder to get it down. You would, you know, because it would take a couple of people or because you'd have to bring each individual bottle down. So we'd break all that down. We would take their display. We would go to the back of the store, and we would throw it in the trash compactor so that it would crush the display so they couldn't build it anymore. We would get ruthless with it. We would hide their displays. We would push them to the back of the store. Their fertilizer pallets. I mean, we would fight for displays with fertilizer pallets. They would move my pallet of fertilizer and put theirs in its place. So we would take their pallet, we would shrink wrap it, and then have someone put it in the overhead somewhere way in the back where it would be hard for them to get. And so we battled. We did not like each other, but we battled, and we battled. But when we saw each other in stores, we were cordial. You know, you couldn't have an all-out fist fight in there. And plus, I think everybody was a little f- afraid of Stu. I mean, he was almost 70, but he looked like he would, he looked like The Undertaker. I mean, he would crush you out there. And uh, so, you know, we, you know, it, but we would fight and we, we would fight. And one day I was working in a store and, and those sliding glass doors in the lows, they opened up, they went, shh and the sunlight came through and in comes Matt and Donnie and I forget the girl's name that worked there for so long. They come rolling in like the rock stars of the pesticide industry and people from all over the store are chanting, here comes the store manager running to greet them. Never the attention we got. When we would walk in, the store managers would hide because they knew that now they would have work to do because, oh, we would have to ask them to get things down with the forklift and this and that, and oh, they would hide from us. But when the Scots guys came in, it was like, oh, it was like uh, God had appeared to people inside the lows. They, they were losing their minds. Oh, they just loved Matt so much. And uh, I couldn't stand this guy. I mean, I got no problem with him now at all, but at the time, I could not stand this guy. 
because he had great relationships with the store manager. So he would, you know, he would talk the store manager into letting him build a display somewhere. And, 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 and we would try, we had some good relationships. The Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, the Lowe's of Mount Pleasant, South Carolina was at one time the number one miracle Grow selling store in the country. So there was awards. So Matt Pat, Matt was a, an awarded uh, rep and just, uh, and I always had plans of how I would beat him. I always had a plan of how I would beat him, but Stu was my boss. So I always had to do it Stu's way, which is fine. But, you know, I always had to do it Stu's way. And... And let's just see if I'm missing anything before I move on to the next phase. I almost want to save the next phase for another time. But you know what? I'll go ahead and get into it. In 2008, um, Stu retired. And I was in the running for... um, You know, that job. So my my new boss, uh, Jason, he was the district manager, called me and he said, hey, Stu's retiring. We know you've worked with Stu for the last four years. Uh, if you want the job, the job is yours. And I said, yes, I want the job. The job paid well. The jo- there was a car allowance uh, and they would pay a little bit of my cell phone. And I got health benefits. I was like, and a retirement plan. I was like, yeah, I want that job. I didn't go to college. Yeah, I want that job. So I met Jason in Orangeburg. He was living in Charlotte, North Carolina. And so he wanted to meet me in Orangeburg to finalize the paperwork. We met at a Burger King. Now, I think even Jason was a little bit embarrassed by this, but our first meeting to be hired for a job took place at a Burger King in Orangeburg, South Carolina. Orangeburg is a kind of a uh, kind of a ghetto slash farming community. <laughs> like it's just a rural area. I liked it. They had some good restaurants, but it was a it was kind of a wild place. So I got hired on. So this was my first year as the guy. Before my title was a seasonal merchandising coordinator. Now my position was the what? Well, oh, I guess I was just. A merchandising coordinator, <laughs> maybe just not seasonal anymore. It wasn't a fancy title at the time, but it it felt good. I got some business cards. I'll try to dig those up, but it, it felt good. 2008, um, I hired a, I had a hired a guy, a guy named Antoine. Antoine was working as a, a we used to have to wear these vests inside the Lowe's, these gray vests, and they would say vendor on the back. And so Antoine already did a job like that, and we would talk all the time. But then when I got the full-time job, his job let him go. So it just worked out. I hired him to come work for me. He was a great dude. He would ride around with me in the 1982 Buick LeSabre and listen to country. I always made him listen to country. And, uh, and, and, and we, had a, we had a great time. And that year, I got to go to my first sales meeting with the company. This was, you know, this was the big deal. I was still driving the Buick LeSabre. I was still dating the girl that Stu set me up with. And we were having a rough, we were having some rough patches. But he, he, you know, we were still dating. And she let me drive her car to the sales meeting. 
The sales meeting is going to take place in Atlanta. I had never done anything like this. This is a very professional event for me, but I'm very broke because I don't make a lot of money at Hyman's in the winter because it's slower. It's not our busy season. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm driving this Buick LeSabre. I don't have the Spectra side job. So when I take this full time, everything, but my first check had not even gone through yet before I'm at the sales meeting. Actually, I had not even hired Antoine yet. So that's a detail that I'll save for tomorrow. I'm going to wrap it up with this story. And so I'm working, I'm going to the sales meeting. I'm broke. I got no money. My glasses, I have one pair of contacts with me. And then my glasses are these plastic square glasses and they had been broken in the corner and I had them super glued together. I took them as precautionary, but I had no intention of ever actually wearing the glasses because I had my contacts. So I'm there, do the first day of sales meetings. It's fun. We have a good time. And then we all go to the Hooters. Now, a lot of these sales meetings, I didn't know, but the bosses will go and they'll open a tab and they'll pay for all your drinks and food and stuff. And I was like, well, that's pretty exciting. So this is my first day of sales meetings. And afterwards, I'm in a Hooters with a bunch of other Spectreside employees. We're hanging out. It's a good Hooters. I mean, this is downtown Atlanta. It was smoking in there. I was like, wow, this is amazing. And this guy named Doug. Now, I don't know Doug. But Doug works for the company, and me and Doug got to drinking. We were having a good time, and Doug said, do you want to go to the strip club? And I didn't want to go to the strip club. I, I really didn't. I don't say that just to be like – I just didn't. I didn't have any money. didn't seem appealing to me. But Doug, Doug was like, don't worry about the money. I got a plan. So he buys our taxi down to the strip club. We go in there. We immediately get in there. And uh, a stripper sits on his lap and a stripper sits on my lap. And now I'm into it. Now I'm like, okay. So I have like a Nokia phone and I can check my bank account from this phone. So this girl, this stripper is on my lap and I call to check my bank account to find out that my first paycheck had been direct deposited. And I was like, let's party. Right. So I get I, this girl asked me, she says, do you want a private dance? And I'm like, what's that? And she told me. And in my mind, it was something else. And uh, I was, you know, I was not being a good person. This is not some great morale story. This is, if anything, this is a, a tale of not what not to do. But so I said, yeah, I'll take the dance. And uh, it was a good time. It wasn't what I thought it would be. And it cost more than I wanted it to cost. And I was, I was about done with it. I was ready to get out. I, after I spent all that money, I was drunk. I was disappointed. I was like, let's get out of here. And I go to try to find Doug. And I find that Doug has two strippers in the room with him. Now, Doug is an older dude. Doug has two strippers in the room with him and a bottle of champagne. Now, I know what one stripper cost. So I can only imagine... That two cost twice that much, and I also knew what the bottle of champagne cost, and it was not cheap. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I'll just go out here and wait on Doug. So I'm just kind of hanging out. A few minutes later, Doug comes out. We're hanging. We're talking. Both pretty wasted, and Doug passes out on the bar. He's just asleep on the bar. I don't even know the guy. He's asleep on the bar, and, and nobody cares. Nobody's kicking him out. No one cares. So I take the champagne that Doug had left. I'm having a glass of it. I'm giving it to other strippers. I'm having a good time. I'm partying. And then when I get ready to leave, I tell I just I can't get Doug up. And I don't know Doug and I can't wake him up. 
And I finally go to one of the bouncers and I was like, hey, I was like, listen, I'm here with this guy. I don't really know him, but I bet you can wake him up. And you know what? He did wake him up. And he got Doug and Doug was pretty wasted and we got into the cab. Doug was going to be paying for all of this. I had no cash on me. And Doug ends up having to stop at one point and throw up and the cab driver gets us to the place. Um, He doesn't. Doug doesn't have any money. He leaves. I don't have any money. I tell the cab driver, I was like, listen, I was like, the best I can do is pay you tomorrow. And he agreed to it. I did pay him the next day. He agreed to it. And then I go, it, it's got to be like four in the morning. I have to be up at eight. I have to be in breakfast at eight. It's four in the morning. I go into my, I stagger into my hotel room. Now, this is my first day of my big new professional job. I stagger into the room. I take I carefully open my contact case. I mean with the most care that you can give it. I open the left one. I take my contact out. I place it in the thing. I make sure it's in there. I close it. I open the right contact side. I take my contact out. I put it in. I make sure it's in there. I close it. The next morning I wake up with no time to spare. I'm still drunk. I feel terrible. I open the contact case. And what do you know? There's one contact in there. I don't know what happened to the other one. It's still a mystery to me. But it's not in that hotel room. It's not in that contact case. So I put the glasses on. Now the glasses, as I've said, have a broken uh, corner to them. But I've glued it. But somehow they've come unglued. So it's not as steady as I would like it to be. And it looks terrible. And I'm sweaty. I mean, I I was a sweaty drunk the entire time. Whenever I would get drunk, I would get sweaty. And whenever I would be hungover, I would be sweaty. And this is Atlanta. It's hot. And I'm sitting in these sales meetings. I mean, and now I'm basically in a classroom the whole day. I'm hungover. I got most, all day I have a a coffee, a Coke, and a water. I'm trying to hydrate, but I want to stay caffeinated. And so I can stay awake and I'm just sitting there. I'm spaced out. I'm going into worlds of depression in my mind. I don't know what happens to a lot of people when they're hungover, but it crushes my endorphins. Alcohol crushes those endorphins. And the next day I'm just going through worlds of depression. I'm, I'm self-conscious. I hope they don't call on me. I'm just happy to be here. But now I'm in my stomach's making noises. I got to pee, I got to poop, I got all kind of stuff going on. It's just a miserable day. We're there for three days. Each day I say, I'm not going to party like this every night, but yet every night I do. Every night someone invites me out for drinks. And it's a boss, and we're told you get there, you got you to you mingle with the bosses, you got you to gotta make friends. And, you know, I did make friends, and... Uh, you know, I made friends with, uh, particular, a guy named Jamie and uh, a girl named Michelle and a guy named Torsten. And those guys would consistently be my friends throughout these sales meetings. I Honestly, I don't know why they were my friends because they were very good at their jobs because each sales meeting there would be there was this 100% club where if you hit 100% of your sales me- your sales plan you would get recognized they would call you up everybody would clap for you you would get an award every year Torsten Jamie and Michelle won 100% club and they were like some of the best reps 
but they were just country. They liked me. Torsten had lived, he went to college in Charleston, so we bonded over that. We just liked each other. And I was like, I was, I was a well-liked person at Spectreside, but not necessarily well-respected in my job, especially not this time. I was brand new. And the whole sales meeting, I just spent it drunk. And I spent about half of my new paycheck in that strip club. Now, these were two-week checks, and these were good checks, especially for me at the time. I mean, these were dang good checks. So I rolled back, and I didn't feel good. I rolled back up to Charleston uh, from Atlanta in my girlfriend's car. I did not tell her that I went to the strip club. I was so ashamed. And she was like, what happened to all your money? Like, Because I, I would be like, I was bro- I'm broke, and uh, I could never tell her. And so that is from 2004 up until 2008 of Spectreside. I still have 2010, 11, 12, skip to 2014 to tell. But we're out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end it. We're out of time on this one. Um, I'm going to have some closing thoughts, but I'm going to end there just so I know where to pick back up. Um, Next week, um, I'm just going to adjust the camera here. But I mean, I spent a lot of my life working for Spectreside. And so I, I, I like talking about it because it's this part of my life that I lived that, you know, I don't really have friends from there. Now, I know that I said at the beginning of this, I still got a lot of friends that work there, and I do. And I got, you know, I got friends from it, but you know what I mean? It's like I don't have people that I see every day that I can talk to about this job. And it was just such a unique kind of job that when I would tell people about it, when I would tell people about the fights and the stuff that we would do and throwing away their displays, they were always just so fascinated by it. I mean, when I took over, the fights got heightened. I took the fights to a whole new level because that was my game plan. I had a game plan to crush the competition. And and then things changed in the job, but that's what I'll get into next week. But you know, at one point, you know, I, I had had this job pegged as the job that I would do, that I would move up in the ranks of this company. And, you know, I would, this, you know, this would be my job. I mean, I, I cut my hair for this job. I had 2007 with Stu, I had long hair. 2008, I was well-groomed and was ready to go. And I would still meet up with Stu on occasion, get together with him. We would meet up at like a TGA Fridays or something like that, and we would have a few vodka sodas while I was on the clock. Uh, but that is, uh, you know, a story for next week. But I appreciate you guys tuning into this. And like I say, if you're on Instagram, I'm at Dusty Slay on Instagram, and I'm doing a nightly show. I'm doing one tonight, although. These podcasts have been taking a really long time to load to the internet. I don't know what that's all about, so it may not even be up by then. But uh, my um, my um, 
Jeez. My uh, Instagram story is tonight at 7, and then I'll, I will resume back next week um, with more stories. Uh, Monday, probably Monday through the whole week. I mean, because any night I don't have shows and I'm not out of town, I'm going to do it because I like doing it and it keeps me active. It keeps me telling stories in a way that I'm not, you know, otherwise telling. And I'm going to try to edit this together for a video. I've had a really good time uh, talking about this and and just, it's just so fun to to be able to kind of talk about this era of my life because... Uh, I don't normally get to talk about it. And, I mean, maybe no one cares. <laughs> and that's fine, but I, I will, between this week and next week, be trying to think of more details to talk about. But in all that time, this is the joke I got. I go, I used to sell pesticides for a living. I did that for a long time. I sold pesticides to Lowe's and Home Depot. Uh, people would come in there, and they would ask weird questions. They'd be like, I'm looking for something organic. I'd like to kill the insects but not harm the environment. I'm like, well, how about a shoe? And that is a good joke. And we are having a good time. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but this was a fun podcast. I've enjoyed this. I'm probably not going to edit the audio so there'll be times throughout the podcast where i'm going oh switching out the camera and that won't make sense but probably shouldn't even tell you that at the end because if you made it this far then you've already heard those things but i appreciate you guys tuning in i'm on tiktok at dusty slay and on youtube but i'll be in huntsville alabama this weekend at stand up live check us out we're having a good time